Our reading this morning is John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, Am he. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from them from their labors. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. I think this is the first time that Steve has read for us. I, um, I heard him read the Bible at Marie's wedding uh, just a few weeks ago, and I said to him, uh, why are you not reading in church? Because he does such a good job. And he said to me, you never asked me. And I thought, yeah, all right, I'll own that. So um, uh, if you would like to join our Bible reading roster, uh, I am inviting you now uh, to let me know. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good way to be a part of, of our church ministry here on a Sunday morning. Now, today we're going to, uh, I guess, kind of start a mini-series within the broader series of, um, of our Garden to Garden City series. Now, I hope, I hope that by now you understand that, um, and have come to appreciate that all of the Old Testament points us towards Jesus. It somehow finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so as we've been working through the Old Testament, we've seen the many ways in which the Old Testament has been pointing to the coming Messiah. The whole Old Testament has been hinting at this anointed one, the Holy, the Holy One of God coming. And so today we start looking at how this kind of plays out in the life of Jesus. And so I don't think we would be doing ourselves um, or doing Christ any justice uh, in looking at Scripture as a whole if we don't spend a, a sizable chunk of our time looking at exactly how Jesus answers all of these foreshadowings in the Old Testament. And so today we're going to be looking at how Jesus radically accepted people uh, in the context of the day. So, uh, so in our passage, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman and he, and he talks to her. Now we have to understand how the Samaritans were viewed by the Jews at that time. Now we all understand that the Jews and Samaritans were at odds with one another. Uh, but it's not that just that they didn't like one another, it's that they, they really hated each other. They had nothing to do with one another. If you saw a Samaritan coming down the street, you would cross the street and walk on the other side. And that is how um, the Jews saw the Samaritans. 
That's how this people group uh, was seen. And so as Jesus travels here through Samaria, that's what he's kind of traveling into. Now, if you know the book of John, if you had read chapter 3, which is just before this, Jesus has been chatting to Nicodemus. And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, that Nicodemus was this ruler, this great ruler in Israel. And so this Jewish ruler comes to Jesus to find out more about Jesus. He says he knows Jesus has come from God and he, and he wants to find out more. And so what John is doing in his gospel is he's deliberately setting up this contrast between this great and powerful Jewish ruler and this woman who is the com- from the complete opposite end of the spectrum, uh, the hated Samaritans. He has a name, he has power, um, he has influence, he comes to Jesus. And this woman at the well has no name. In fact, she's never named. Uh, She has no power. She uh, is a social outcast and she's from the wrong people group. Now notice, uh, Jesus here doesn't even go to just any old Samaritan. No, he goes to one of the worst of the Samaritans. Now, we don't see this in our culture today because we live in 2022. Um, but first of all, a Jewish man would not sit and chat with, a, uh, with any woman, actually, just by themselves, regardless uh, of whether they were a Samaritan or a Jew or whatever. But not only was this woman a Samaritan, she was also a social outcast even in her own society. Even in the Samaritan city, she was an outcast. And we know this because she came to draw water at noon. In the culture of the day, one of the domestic duties of women was to draw water for their households. And they would do so in the morning, before the sun was hot, before the day's uh, rays you know, were, were at their hottest. They would come and they would draw water for what was needed for the day. Now this woman comes at noon because no one else would be there. There was only one reason you came at noon in the blistering sun, and that is because you were ostracized, because your society had rejected you. And so this woman, she is truly a sinner and living this publicly sinful life. She has these five husbands, or has had five husbands, and she's now living with another man. Uh, She is breaking the moral code even of what the Jews considered to be the wicked Samaritans. And so really there can be no bigger contrast between the righteous, powerful Nicodemus, and this woman whom Jesus is speaking to. A rich, powerful ruler, a man of influence, a teacher, and this lady who is rejected by God's people, the Jews, rejected even by the Samaritans. And it is to her that Jesus comes. And it is to her that he reveals himself. And we need to understand that Jesus is teaching us a lesson here about how he radically comes and accepts people from every stratum of society. The gospel is good news for everyone, whether you are a powerful, influential, ruler, uh, man with a name, or a nobody with no name. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what level of education you have or how much money or power or influence you have. It doesn't matter what social position you hold. The gospel is good news for you. 
The gospel should be offered to every people group, to all kinds of people everywhere. Everyone everywhere needs Jesus. I don't think that's controversial. Uh, I think we know that. I think we know that in principle. I wonder whether we believe that in practice. So let me do a thought experiment with you. What is the most hated group of people that you can think of today? Netflix recently released a documentary called The Most Hated Man on the, in, uh, on the Internet. Now, I forget his name, but he started a website where when, when uh, a guy and a girl broke up, you could post all the intimate photos and videos you had of this lady, and that would be, that's the content for the site. And it caused a whole bunch of issues. Obviously, it's morally uh, reprehensible. And he was labelled as the most hated man on the internet. Now in practice, who do you want at your dinner table to share the gospel with? This guy, convicted? Does Jesus radically accept him and love him? And did he die for his sins? Would you be as happy to have him at your dinner table and share the gospel with him as you would be a 35-year-old married with two kids and a stable job kind of person? I suspect I know who I would rather have a conversation with and that is a problem. You see, my friends, when we start delineating between good sin and bad sin, we have made a distinction that does not exist in eternity. And in fact, we are practicing a kind of, uh, we are not practicing the kind of radical acceptance that Jesus showed to this woman. And the truth of the matter is that unless we um, realize that before God we are all condemned sinners, we actually cannot appreciate what Christ did on the cross. For us. Unless we understand that Jesus going to the cross is something done by us, we cannot appreciate that the cross is also done for us. And unless you recognize that you and I are, are in exactly the same position as that most hated man on the internet before God because of your sin, you cannot appreciate the radical acceptance that Jesus showed to you. For there but for the grace of God go we. So Jesus radically accepts this loose woman in the same way he radically accepts you in your sin. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were still an enemy of God, he died for you. And even when you and I had nothing at all to recommend us to God, Christ died for us. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus radically meets people wherever they're at. He radically accepts people wherever they are at. And that is the first thing we need to understand. But that's not all. That leads us right into the second part of our passage. He, yes, he radically accepts you wherever you are, 
but then he exposes your heart. Read with me from verse 13. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, said the woman, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here and have to come here uh, to draw water. Go and call your husband, Jesus says, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, said the woman, I see that you are a prophet. So having radically accepted this woman, Jesus goes right on in and exposes her sin. And notice it doesn't just come up in casual conversation. Jesus instructs her, knowing full well that she doesn't have a husband, to go and get her husband. Jesus knows her situation and he, and he points out her sin. Now, what do we need to see here? What do we need to understand? What's the lesson here? Firstly, we have to understand that this happens in the context of Jesus describing himself as the living water. The water from, if you drink from this well, you will never be thirsty again. Water is this metaphor that Jesus uses to describe her spiritual situation. He's in fact, in effect saying, what you have been doing is you have been drinking from an impure spiritual fountain. You have been drinking this kind of muddy water all along. He identifies in this woman a kind of deep longing for connection, a a longing so deep, so real, so necessary that she has done whatever it has taken to get that sense of connection. So she's gone from husband to husband to husband to husband to husband to not even bothering to get married again. And this pattern of thirsting after a relationship has cost her dearly. She's lost all social standing. She's an outcast in her society. I would guess that she was probably rather poor as a result of her situation. And yet she keeps looking for fulfillment in relationships. Why? Because her soul was made to connect with God. And so Jesus uses this image of the strongest earthly longing we have, something we cannot live without, water and our thirst for it. He describes her spiritual situation as if she needed a drink. She needed to quench her thirst, but she was drinking this kind of salt water that just made her more thirsty. And I think if we pause for a moment to reflect on our own lives, Often I think the same is true of us. We drink and we drink and we drink from this dirty spiritual salt water. All the fountains of salt water that the world offers us, never to be satisfied. Now, Often in the ancient world, uh, which was nowhere near as affluent as our world, People thought that if they could only get something, you know, like they could raise to certain social standing or get some political power or wealth or in, enjoy the pleasures of the world, that their souls would be satisfied, that life would be fulfilled. 
That was their problem in those days. And our, our problem today is that we can actually probably get all of those things relatively easy and yet still be unfulfilled. If we live in Australia, then we are wealthy by the world standard. If we have access to clean drinking water and food and shelter, we're doing pretty well. For us, it's easy to find people to spend the night with, right? There isn't even really a social stigma about this anymore. Sex is cheap. If we want political power or we want to be seen as important or get some sort of um, uh, feeling of importance, all we have to do is to jump on the bandwagon of destroying whichever public figure happens to currently be in the, in the target or whatever social institution is currently being destroyed and post about it on our socials. That's all we need to do. And yet the wealthiest, most popular, most influential person today remains unfulfilled in life if they don't have Christ. Because each and every one of these things is a dirty saltwater spring that when you drink from it makes you more thirsty. What we need what this woman at the well needed was the living water only Jesus could supply. Our souls were made for God and nothing will satisfy our souls apart from Him. Psalm 42 describes it this way, As the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, O God. We long for God. We long to be near Him, to be close to Him, to be connected to Him. We ache to find a spiritual home of rest. All human beings, whether they can name it or not, yearn for this connection that was lost because of our sin. We yearn to be reconnected, reconciled with God. We have this deep longing in our hearts. The ancient church father Augustine puts it this way, writing in his book Confessions, he's, he's speaking to God and he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Bear in mind, this is from a man who before coming to faith in Christ, when he was a young man, devoted his life to finding every bodily pleasure a person could lay his hands on. He had the same problem the woman at the well had. He tried to fill this gap in his soul through physical pleasure and connection. But having met Christ, he came to recognize the problem. His soul was made for God. And that restlessness that he was trying to still through bodily pleasure could only be stilled in a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. And when he drank from that fountain of living water, his thirst for a relationship with God was finally quenched. And he ultimately became what, what even the New Yorker magazine calls the most important Western thinker of the last 1,500 years.
The woman at the well's soul thirsts after God in just the same way, and so do ours. But notice, friends, to get her there, to get her to recognise her situation, Jesus does something shocking to us. He does something that would not be accepted in today's society. What does he do? He specifically exposes her sin. He names it. He points it out. He points it and the consequences out to her. And he says, you're looking for the spiritual water in all the wrong places. He says, you have no husband. You're right. And then he tells her, according to her words, everything she ever did. Boy, that seems harsh, doesn't it? I mean, isn't Jesus loving? Doesn't he care about her feelings? Doesn't he realize what this does to a person's mental well-being? Surely Jesus, creator of the universe, should know better than this. The reason this seems so harsh to us is because our world has sold us this lie that we should aim to never offend anyone. You should never say or do something that hurts someone else's feelings. That runs counter to our cultural norms. We don't like our weaknesses being pointed out. We don't like it when a mirror is held up to our moral failings. But don't you see? Don't you see that it means that we never get to see who we really are? Unless a mirror is held up to us, we will never be able to see who we really are before God. For us to be truly reconciled through Jesus, we actually have to come face to face with this mirror that Christ holds up to us. We have to stare into it and realize that all of us in some way have had five husbands and the man that we are living with today is not our husband. We cannot be free from our sin unless we are confronted with it. And it's not until Jesus confronts this woman's sin that she comes to actually believe in him. And the truth of the matter is that we cannot be saved unless we know what we are being saved from. Yes, Jesus will meet you wherever you are at. He will meet you there, whether it's at a well or a brothel or wherever. He will meet you there, but he will not leave you there. He exposes your sin precisely because he loves you. He convicts you of your wrongdoing precisely because he loves you and you can start changing precisely because you've gone through that process. And sometimes, actually often, he will do this through other people around you who will tell you you're going wrong. And you and I should thank them for it because they are Jesus' instruments in your life. Yes, he will radically accept you where you are, but that radical acceptance will ultimately lead to him holding up a mirror to your life 
and we need to look deeply into it. And so he accepts this woman, and he doesn't leave her where she's at. Let's focus briefly just on her response. So at this stage, Jesus has offered her salvation through faith in him. He's pointed out her spiritual state. He's confronted her with the reality of her life. And now, at this point, the woman could have responded in a few different ways. She's got a couple of choices. Firstly, she could have gone the way of much of today's, dare I say it, shallow Christianity. She could have gone the way of much of Christianity today. She could have rejected the biblical Christ and, and traded him for a therapeutic Jesus. A Jesus who, who radically accepts you where you're at and then stops there. He never challenges you, he never corrects you, he never contradicts you. And when you read something in the Bible that you don't like, you just think, well, that's just contextual and so on. What this normally looks like is she could have said, you are judging me. The Jesus I know radically accepts people, but you've pointed out my sin, so I will reject you. You are imposing a moral standard on me that's unfair. The Jesus I know loves me as I am. That's where many Christians go today. They are so unfamiliar with Christ as he is portrayed in the scriptures and so shaped by our culture that we have uh, misunderstood the word of love. Where loving someone means you must celebrate their life choices. And this is particularly the case when it comes to sexuality and sexual expression. Just this last week. Uh, there was the story in the news of the seven Christian manly players, rugby players, you may have seen that. They refused to wear a gay pride jumper and every social or media outlet says, come on, we're living in 2022 now. You just need to be re-educated about what it means to love. And so that's the world we live in. But that's not actually the way Jesus is. That's not the biblical Christ. Loving someone means confronting them in their sin. Yes, he will radically accept everyone, but he will not leave people there. For you to be included in his family, for them to experience God's love, for them to be free from the wrath God has over their sin, they have to bend their knees to Christ and not the world. Now, there are normally three places where Christians today go to say, look, Jesus doesn't judge people, or Jesus accepts everyone. This passage is the first, the woman at the well. The second story is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector who swindled people. And the third is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 9. Now, in each case, what happens? Jesus accepts them, he meets them, and then he says, go and sin no more. Zacchaeus gave back all his ill-gotten gains. The woman caught in adultery is told by Christ, go and leave your life of sin. And this woman here radically changes her life and becomes an evangelist. An encounter with the true Christ should change you. It should radically reshape your life. 
It should transform you precisely because he accepted you where you were at and forgave your sins and didn't leave you there. My friends, do not fall for the shallow Jesus that much of the Christian world offers you today. Respond like this woman at the well. She, she meets Jesus. She runs into town. She finds every person she can. She tells them all about Jesus. She says, come and see this man. He told me everything I ever did. He revealed my deep brokenness. He's given me a solution to my deepest longings. Come, I, I want to introduce you to him. And so they come. And they meet Jesus. And as he meets with them and talks with them, they too are transformed. And in a few days, two days, the testimony of the entire town of these hated Samaritans echo her testimony and they declare in verse 42, we have heard for ourselves and know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Isn't it amazing what radical acceptance of Jesus does? Is this your life? Have you encountered Christ in this way that so radically transforms you that you cannot help but run into your town and tell your friends, come, come and see the man that I have found? Or have we settled for a cheap version of Jesus who offers a cheap version of salvation of just accepting us where we are at? Friends, the real Christ will meet you wherever you are today. But he will challenge you to leave the life of your sin, to take up the free gift of eternal life that he offers, the living water he offers, where he then tells us, go and sin no more. And if that is true of us, then we should respond like this woman and tell everyone, to come, come and meet this man because he has radically changed who I am. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on what you have done in our lives, the sacrifice you have made on the cross, as we see our own acceptance, our radical acceptance through the work that you have done. Lord, we cannot help but come and bow before you. We pray that you will change our hearts, O oh Lord, that we too will run, run into the town and say, come and see, come and meet this man. Lord, we pray that you will help us to see every day the opportunities you give us to serve you in response of what you have already done for us. Help us to continue to turn away from our lives of sin. Even if that means we must look deeply into the mirror that you hold in front of us. And so we pray this, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen.